Um, we're finishing up Second uh, Peter today, and I've titled the message, um, How Should We Wait? How Should We Wait? And it's really about um, our ultimate hope in our eternal home. And it really does dovetail um, perfectly with what Gary talked about and that um, before any of us were created, God knew us and that he had predestined us to be his sons and daughters. And um, if you know Jesus Christ, you are part of God's forever family. You're part of what we call or what he would call his um, already kingdom, but his not yet kingdom that we are fully his sons and daughters, but one day um, we'll be with him in his physical presence where he dwells um, in the new heavens and the new earth. And today we're going to be, uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And I'm going to be reading that in just, well, actually, I think I'll just read that right now, actually. If you'd open up your Bibles or your phones, your iPads to Second uh, Peter 3. Verses 11 through 18. It'll be on the screen as well. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the uh, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them, speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Hanky, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Gary, wherever you're at, for causing me to get sniffly. If you're new with us here today, welcome. Um, we are in that second Peter. We're finishing up the book. Typically what we do here, about 60-70% of the time, is teach through a book of the Bible. So this is uh, where the Lord has us today, finishing up this, uh, this great book uh, this great letter, second letter of Peter at the end of his life. How many of you watch or have watched HGTV? Quite a few of you. Even some of you guys are uh, proud enough to acknowledge that. There was a show, I think it's been canceled, called The Extreme Home Makeover. Anybody remember that show? And I just I wrote down the description. It says each episode features a family that has faced some sort of recent or ongoing hardship, such as a natural disaster or a family member with a life-threatening disease, and their need of hope. 
So the producers coordinate with the local construction contractor, which then coordinates with various companies in the building trades for a makeover of the family's home. And this was all done without any of the family's input, but by these builders being uh, students of this family, knowing um, how many, um, what the family enjoys, how many people are in the family. And then over seven days, while the family had, gives no input and they are just living their life, uh, the contractors remake this home. They do an extreme makeover. I want you to contrast that show with House Hunters, which we've watched from time to time, and it kind of drives me nuts because of the whiny, wah, 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 wah. They don't have rounded edges. They got white this. They don't have a tall enough toilet. I don't know what they got. All this... This, so this house hunters is individuals or couples who are, um, it's been narrowed down to three houses and they're looking for their dream home. They're working to try to do everything they can to find their perfect home. Opposed to um, extreme makeover, it is somebody else creating that home for them. The home that we are waiting for is not a remodel. It's a complete scrape. And we have nothing to do with our eternal home. There's nothing that we did or that we can, to, can do to deserve that home. And we have no say in designing that home. If you contrast that with the way that many of us live, that we are, we are trying to um, create, do everything we can to create a perfect home here rather than placing our hope in our eternal home. And today, we're going to be reminded of our ultimate hope in God's promise of a perfect and eternal home. And this hope in our future inheritance should inform the way that we live here in this temporary home. And I'm going to just, I'm going to pray again. God, I just uh, ask that... um, that is uh, in my uh, inadequacies, but in your power that you would uh, transform us uh, by the renewing of our mind. God, I pray that by the proclamation of your word this morning, God, that we would, we would let go of things that are not eternal. And that, Lord, we would... Um, that we would uh, be um, compelled to live um, diligent lives, pursuing holiness and godliness as a response to what you have already done in our life with our eternal hope in mind. So God, please uh, just uh, help me stand behind your word. And I pray, God, that we would be uh, changed and you would be glorified. And God's people said. Amen. The Bible informs us that the Christian's ultimate hope are in God's very great and precious promises, as it says in the beginning of chapter, of chapter 1 of Second Peter. God made a down payment on his future promise of our eternal home by bringing us into his already, but not yet, home or kingdom. And he did this by becoming a man, by then living a sinless and holy and perfect life, living the life that you and I couldn't live and didn't live and don't live. 
And he died a death and incurred the wrath of the Father that you and I deserved. He then victoriously conquered the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns and he patiently waits for a time when he'll do an extreme makeover on the heavens and the earth. We were saved from the penalty of our sins. We were saved from God's wrath when we placed our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We are saved by grace through faith, and this saving faith that is given to us as a gift saves us from the eternal judgment and brings us into a relationship with our eternal Father. This is important because we weren't just saved to avoid eternal damnation, but we were saved into an eternal relationship with our Creator. And at that moment of belief, at that moment of salvation, we became adopted sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. We became a part of his forever family. We were delivered from the domain of darkness where sin and Satan had a death grip on us. And we were transferred into the kingdom of Jesus where there is freedom and power from both sin and Satan. As a result of our faith, the Bible says, we've been born again. The old is gone, the new has come. So those who have trusted or put their faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross for the remission of our sins are said to be in his already but not yet kingdom. We have been brought into his spiritual kingdom where we get to enjoy all the blessings of this spiritual kingdom, the forgiveness of sins, relationship with the Father, our new family, God's spirit, and a future hope but we will not be ushered into our final and forever kingdom or home until he returns to restore or recreate the earth as he initially created it. And he initially created the earth and it will be recreated in its, all, in its perfection where nothing dies, where everything flourishes, where, where there's no more sin, where there's no more um, uh, suffering, where there's no more death. And Peter refers to this physical kingdom in verse 13 today as a new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. In Peter's first letter, he describes the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells as our inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, he says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, there is an inheritance, there is a, there is a recreated earth and heavens that is waiting for us, that will be recreated at one, at, at one point when Jesus returns. And God's children will inherit this eternal home and we will be welcomed by our righteousness and perfect God who dwells physically with us in complete and total righteousness. Let me read Revelation 21, verses 1 and then verses 3 through 5. And this is John in a vision foreseeing the new heaven and the new earth. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And these words, folks, are our hope in the midst of a hard world, in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of a place where there is sickness, where there is war, where there is disunity in a country like America. So remember this principle that sin and Satan always destroy. Sin and Satan always destroy, but God's grace always restores and renews. At the moment of salvation, we received a regenerate heart, that, the, that our heart of stone was gone, but we received a heart of flesh, that we became a new creation. And in Romans it says that all of creation um, groans for its recreation. That we live in a world that if you're, if you're wondering why there is sickness, why there's disunity, it's because we live in a world that is decaying. We live in a world that, that has um, no hope for survival. That the only hope that this world has is in Jesus Christ. And the only ones that have hope in Jesus Christ are the ones who have put their full faith and trust in his sacrifice for the remission of their sins. We're going to see here today that the truth and promises of Scripture inform the way we are to live. If these things are so, if everything I just talked about is so, how are we to wait while we live on this side of eternity and to be ushered into our forever home? I don't know if you remember six, seven weeks ago at the beginning of 2 Peter, Peter laid out seven virtues for living, seven qualities of a Christian, seven ways that we're to live. And now here at the end of the letter, at the end of his life, in his concluding remarks, Peter reiterates how we are to live this life, this side of eternity, how we are to grow in Christ's likeness. In the beginning of chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter forewarned us that false teachers would scoff at Christians. They would scoff at Christians who desired to live in uh, lives of holiness, in lives of righteousness. These teachers might say, um, you are saved by grace. You are saved by grace. It's nothing you did. Therefore, go live any way you please. That's called licentious living. We've talked about the last couple of weeks. It's, what, it's, the, it's the message that false, false teachers bring. Go live any way you choose. They would say, Jesus promised return to judge the living and the dead. It's not happened yet. Therefore, it probably won't happen. So live and let live. Do whatever seems right in your eyes. Then here, if you look at verse 11 and 14, he describes and he summarizes the way we're to live as Christians while we wait for Jesus' return. And it's worth mentioning here lest you not understand God's grace, that this type of living is not salvific, that this type of living does not save anybody. 
Peter does not hold out these efforts that he's going to describe as a means of salvation, but as a natural result or response to our salvation. Peter starts both of his letters with the indicatives of salvation before he gives us the imperatives of salvation or the um, implications of salvation. In other words, the pattern of the New Testament, actually the pattern of the entire Bible is to first describe and remind Christians of their salvation and then inform us how to live in response to all that God has done and promised to do in the lives of those he's saved by grace. It's a very simple principle in, in Scripture, and if you miss it, you're either going to err towards legalism or you're going to err towards licentiousness. And that principle is, is to understand what God has already done, to understand his amazing love for us, to understand and stand in his eternal promises, and that will drive, that will inform the way that we're to live on this place between uh, salvation and, um, and eternity, between the altar and the door of salvation. Here are a few of the indicatives that Peter wrote to us about in his two letters. In 1 Peter chapter 1, as we already read, he's caused us to be born again. And just before that, he referred to his, his, his readers as the elect. If you know Jesus, you have been born again to a living hope. The old has gone, the new has come. That he, uh, he foreknew you, he chose you, he elected you to be his sons and daughters knowing that you would be rebellious, knowing that you would be enemies, that he still chose you before the beginning of time. He handpicked you and I to be in his forever kingdom, to be his adopted sons and daughters. As I, I think as I said once before as we were teaching through Galatians, I had this picture in my mind when I think of adoption, I think of walking through um, an orphanage somewhere in Africa and you're going by crib after crib and you're seeing these, these cute um, snot-nosed babies that you can pick it to be any, you can pick anyone you want because they're cute. Well, God adopted us knowing that we were hellions. That we were the ones that had the cup like we were in a jail going across the crib saying, let me out of here. He adopted us not because of anything we did, but in spite of everything that he knew we were going to do. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter tells us right from the beginning that we have obtained a faith that is equal to his. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he reminds us of the glorious truth that he, God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature. So as Peter signs off and writes these final words, he gives us commands. Yes, today he's going to give us commands. He's going to tell you how to live. He's going to tell us what the implications are of our salvation while we await the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I don't know if you've got, uh, some of your versions might have a question mark there, but the, the proper uh, translation, which is really found in the ESV, um, is that it's exclamation point. He's not asking a question, he's telling us. It goes something like this. He says, he says, live holy and godly lives while you wait and hasten the coming of God. And what hasten means is to earnestly desire. 
He says, while you wait for the new heavens and the new earth, while you earnestly desire the new home, live this way. Live lives of godliness. Live lives of holiness. In light of the return of Jesus and the destruction of all physical matter, as he describes it above in verse 10 and below in verse 12, he says, live this way. Live lives of godliness and holiness as you wait and hasten his return. And then thankfully, in verse 13, he gives us further clarity because I'm not that excited about waiting for him to destroy everything. That doesn't like motivate me every day to get up and to love Jesus knowing that he's going to destroy everything without the truth in 13 to be attached to it. In 13, he clarifies the believer's hope that we were to wait for and earnestly desire. And even though everything will be destroyed, our hope and earnest desire is in God's very great and precious promise to recreate the new heavens and the earth where righteousness dwells. That's our hope. So in light of our great salvation on the one side and our hope for the new heavens and earth on the other side, how are we to live and wait? How are we to do that? And he says right at the get-go, it's we're to be holy. We're to, we're to live lives of holiness. And i got to tell you right up front, he says live lives of holiness and godliness. They are so tightly connected that it's hard to distinguish actually between one and the other. Holiness refers to being set apart from a life of sin. At the moment of salvation, we were made holy. Or as the Bible calls it, we were sanctified. We were set apart. We were separated from sin, Satan, and death. Does that mean that we're not going to continue to sin? It doesn't mean that. But it means that the power of sin no longer has a grip on us. The power of Satan no longer has control over us. That death has been conquered. That Jesus no longer sees us, as, or the Father no longer sees us as sinful because we've been clothed in Jesus' righteous robes. The Spirit set us apart into the sphere of the holy so that we can grow in actual holiness in our lives. And the Spirit of God continues to make us more and more holy. And this is a lifelong process. For some of us, it takes longer than others. One day, when we're with Jesus, when, we are, when, we, when we're in His presence, where righteousness dwells, in the new heavens and the new earth, one day we will be holy, not just positionally holy, but in our lives where we will sin no more and others will not sin against us. 1 Peter 1.15, going all the way back, Peter describes this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. He says, but he... Who, is, who called you is holy. God who called you is holy. He's set apart. He's sinless. He's perfect. So you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We're to conduct ourselves in a way that is different from our former selves. The old is gone, the new has come. We're to live as ones who have been set free from the power of sin and the power of Satan. We're the ones who ha- to have hope that death has been conquered. And in this verse in 1 chapter, uh, in, in 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 15, Peter's quoting Leviticus 11.45. And let me quote this to you. 
It's important. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. If you're able to write in your Bibles, you should underline or circle to be your God. That he brought them out of Egypt so that they can be his people and, and that he could be their God. Now listen to this. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. Notice it doesn't say if you are holy as I am holy, I will be your God. He says since I am your God, be holy. Live a life consecrated to me. Live in joyful obedience, not for what you can gain, but because of, all, of what you've already obtained. And then he says to live a life of godliness in verse 11. And a life of godliness is very similar to a life of holiness. Godliness refers to the, the truths of salvation and righteousness in Christ, which produce holiness in believers. In other words, we're to live as the Father already sees you and I. That when we, in Romans 6, it says that, that if you know Jesus Christ, you died with Christ. The old man is gone, the new man has come. You've died with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. Now we still are, are in this flesh, but the way that the Father sees us is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And godliness is walking as Jesus walked. It's, it's living as God already sees us. It's acting as we already are. So the call to godliness is not a challenge to pursue a self-generated bootstrap godliness that I've got to put it on every day and I've got to walk like Jesus. It's to remember first and, first and foremost that you are already like Jesus. That your life is united with Christ. It's a call to live out the realities of the gospel in response to God's grace. By virtue of Christ's saving grace, all of us who believe in him have been united to him so that we share in his godliness. His godly record becomes ours by grace. Peter's call to godliness is, those, is, is gospel generated and it's gospel sustained. If you remember at the beginning of, of, of 2 Peter chapter 1, he says that we've been given everything we need for life and what? Godliness. He's given us all the resources we need to live a godly life. He's given us everything we need to live a holy life. You know, there might be some here, there's certainly uh, many in the church worldwide from the time that Peter wrote this till Jesus comes back, this, is, this might sound like legalism. Like, like, why should I strive to live holy, a holy life or a godly life? The difference is profound. Legalism says this, I will do this thing to gain merit or standing before God. That's legalism. I will be holy and I will be godly to gain standing or merit before God. To earn my salvation, to gain more love. That's legalism. And what Peter is saying here is that I will do this. I will live a godly life. I will live a holy life because of God's love for me. 
You see, my desire to live a holy, godly life is actually my worship. Romans 12.1, if you remember going through that at the beginning of the year, uh, that, that Paul appealed to his readers by the mercies of God. I appeal to you based on everything that God has done for you, everything who God is. I appeal to you to present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and that's your spiritual worship. So living holy, godly lives is in response to everything that Christ has done for us. If we look at verse 14, Peter tells his audience, you and I, he says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Anybody here don't want peace? We all want peace, but ultimate peace is found in hopeful living that produces a desire, a diligent desire to be found spotless and blameless. Not to gain entrance into heaven, but because you've already been given the keys. Because your inheritance is already stored up for you. You will have peace when your hope is properly placed and you live lives of diligent godliness and holiness. And folks, if you live, if you are diligent in living this way, if you're diligent in living lives of holiness and godliness, not to gain anything, but because of everything you already possess, and if you're diligent to be found by him spotless and unblemished, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have peace. You're going to have peace. This type of living requires diligence to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to give you a taste of verse 15 and 16, and just submit it more for your own study. That here, Peter is affirming Paul's writings as Scripture. And he's encouraging Christians that, that all of the Bible is to be obeyed. That all of the Bible is to be adhered to. And then he warns us in verse 16 that false teachers are going to twist the Scriptures. They're going to say, go live any way you want to live. It's not relevant anymore. Roles, and women's, uh, roles of men's and women uh, today are not relevant like they were 2,000 years ago. The Bible today needs to be adjusted to, to, so that we can love the culture appropriately. He says, be on guard in verses 15 through 16. And he warns us that these false teachers are going to twist the scriptures to fit their own paradigm and to justify their own licentious living. In verse 17, he says, therefore then, since this is going to happen, be forewarned, since this is going to happen, knowing this beforehand, verse 17, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless, licentious people, and then lose your own stability. You see, our stability, our sure-footedness comes from God's word, and it's applied to us by God's Spirit. In verse 18, Peter hits us with his final words. This is his big takeaway. It's his final encouragement. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
the more we know His grace. What's grace? It's unmerited favor. The more we know everything that we've received is a gift from God. Nothing we deserved. The more we know His grace and the more we come to know Him, not just about Him. And this, if, if I've been so um, convicted and encouraged in my own walk with the Lord that, um, that as I spend time in His Word, even preparing to open the Word on Sunday mornings, it has very little to do, actually, with knowing Him at an intellectual level. It starts there. But the knowledge that he's talking about, the knowledge that we're to grow in is a relationship, a communion, a fellowship, an intimacy with the Lord. It's to know him so well, to understand his character so well, to understand his grace so deeply, to drink of it so often that it drives me to intimacy and communion and fellowship with him. And I just want to encourage you that, that if, you, um, if you are able to, um, to quote a lot of God's word, if you are able to make a case for eschatology in times with me, if you are able to um, talk about um, the, the, the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices, and you're able to, to describe Hebrew words and Greek words, and you're able to tell me so much about God's word, and I observe your life, and I say, how are you doing loving and living for Jesus? How are you at mortifying sin in your life? How are you at living joyfully and holy and godly lives? And you go, you know, I'm not. I'm not. I know a lot about God, but I'm not walking with God. His encouragement to us here is to grow in our knowing. Not just know about God, but know Him in the most intimate way. It's like going to a restaurant, right? You can, you can know the restaurant by looking at the menu. We were at Jay's Bistro the other night with my son and my daughter, my, my son-in-law and daughter, um, and, and the, the menu looked amazing. And I had actually, when he, when he walked away, I'd actually memorized a couple of things that I didn't have to look at the menu to go ahead and order it. But when I tasted it, those ahi tuna tacos, you should go try them. They're unbelievable. The muscles, the the lamb ribs. Go taste it. Taste Jesus. Understand his grace. Drink deep from it. And know that he is good. Stop striving to build your own kingdom and diligently work to build his and await his perfected kingdom the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells where the righteousness dwells and he's made a home for you and I where we will be completely righteous with him where the entire universe will be righteous and perfect with no sin, no decay, no deterioration. So I actually don't, if I keep talking, I'm just going to babble. We're about um, 
seven or eight minutes late. Surprise, surprise. But we get to celebrate what we just talked about. That on the night before Jesus was betrayed, this is at the end of his life. The end of his perfect life that he lived in our place so that he could be the spotless and unblemished lamb that we could never be. That on the night before he was betrayed and he laid his life down, he said, this is my body. This is my body that is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant that is spilled for you. That will give you eternal standing in my Father's kingdom. Drink this in remembrance of me. So, you know the drill. Do business with the Lord as the worship team uh, leads us in in God's timing, just go up the side of the walls, take the elements, go back to your seats, and, um, and prayerfully enjoy communion with the Lord through these elements.